Hello and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Guernsey podcast, which is rated one of the top 10 most useful sustainable finance podcasts by the Green Finance Guide. Guernsey is one of the jurisdictions leading the way in green and sustainable finance. And as part of this podcast series, we'll be speaking to and learning from some of the global figures in the field. My name is Rosie Alsop. I am Communications Director here at Guernsey Finance. We're the promotional agency for Guernsey's financial services sector. Today, we have a real treat for our listeners. My guest is none other than the naturalist, explorer, presenter and writer, Steve Brackshaw, MBE. We've been honoured to have Steve as our keynote speaker at this year's Guernsey Funds Forum. Steve is a BAFTA award-winning wildlife expert, boasting an impressive TV career with popular franchises such as Deadly 60 and more recently with Sky Nature for his new series, Whale, with Steve Batchel. In 2022, Steve was one of the presenters for BBC One's Our Changing Planet, the launch of a groundbreaking definitive seven-year diary documenting the fight to save our planet's most threatened ecosystems. In 2021, Shark with Steve Batchel saw him dive with many species of sharks, helping him helping to debunk the myth that all sharks are dangerous. Outside of his TV career, Steve's published 13 books, the most recent of which was written with his wife, the double gold Olympic medal winner, Helen Glover. Steve's also a proud ambassador for the Scouts, Movember and the Get Outside Champion for Ordnance Survey. He's also a brand ambassador for the Sky Zero Environmental Campaign. In 2020, Steve was awarded the title of Honorary Lecturer at Bangor University and in 2019 he was awarded an MBE in the New Year Honours for services to charity and wildlife conservation. Um, Welcome Steve, it is an absolute pleasure to have you with us today. So your love for creatures spans everything from bugs to bats uh, and sharks to turtles and everything in between. So I understand that you grew up surrounded by rescue animals. Is that where your love of the natural world began? I would say probably did, yeah. My parents had a a crazy idea when I was probably about four years old of uh, discovering a new life in self-sufficiency. And they found this... The good life. Yeah, exactly. They found this ramshackle old small holding, um, which they took on on a very short-term lease, giving up all of their security and you know their their financial future for this ideal of us as kids growing up surrounded by rescue animals and surrounded by the sorry heaths and and ancient woodlands and it was it was magical and it, it gave me so much as a kid just the, the knowledge that you know I always had something that could make me happy I always knew that if ever I felt down all I needed to, was to get outside and immerse myself in nature and I would instantly be happy. What an idyllic childhood. Um, So Deadly Mission Shark is your latest TV project. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so it's probably the the riskiest thing I've ever taken on. And And you've done some risky things. I've done some risky things, but it's always been risk to myself. And this time round, I managed to convince the BBC to allow me to take 10 kids, 12 years old, 13 years old, to the Bahamas to get them their scuba diving licenses and take them diving with sharks. Um, Half the crew were from the Bahamas themselves. None of them had ever left their own island. The other half from here in the UK, and most of those had never left uh, our shores. And we went through the whole process of of teaching them how to dive, which in itself is, you know, a pretty full-on thing for Mm. for a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old. 
and then we stepped up through the, the lines of uh, diving with baby lemon sharks to diving with bull sharks but in a cage um, all the way up to critically endangered five meter long great hammerhead sharks it was the most life-affirming thing I think I've ever done. And seeing in, the, in the, the course of just a few weeks, these young people genuinely transformed, becoming completely new human beings, and all set on a path towards something exciting for the Bahamians, convinced that they were gonna end up working in the local dive shop or you know, doing something with tourism and diving to the, the, the guys that came from the UK, all absolutely heart set on a career in conservation. And it felt like we changed these kids' lives. And it was incredibly special. I'm very, very proud of it. That sounds absolutely amazing. Now, swimming with sharks, tell me about the very first time that you did it and how did you prepare to actually get yourself in the water? Um, how do you assess the behavior of the sharks um, so that you know that it's safe? Now, I understand that you have been bitten by a caiman and a shark in the uh, past. So, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> how did you prepare that very first time? Well, so, I mean, just as no mountaineer has Everest as their first mountain, no diver ever has a great white as their first shark dive. You know, you work your way up gradually. And for me, my first shark dive was a complete accident. I, I was just a kid myself. Um, I was out snorkeling and I saw a shark and was super, super excited. And then it started going around and around and around me and I was absolutely terrified. And what does that mean in shark behavior? Well, it can mean all sorts of things, but to a nine or 10 year old as I was then, you know, all it meant was that the shark was, was circling me with the intent to eat me. Um, now I know that that was a black tip reef shark. It was probably no more than a meter in length. And the, the most dangerous thing that it could have done to me would have, would have been well, uh, to, to have nipped my toe and <laughs> absolutely nothing more. The average haddock would be more, uh, more frightening. But, you know, there's that, that sense of perception, isn't there? It's a shark, it's gonna eat us. And, you know, we, we were way, way back there in the 1980s in terms of our understanding of what sharks are and what sharks can do. And, and now, over, you know, all these years that I've spent diving with them, I, I have dived with great white sharks outside the cage in, in blue water. Bulls, tigers, great hammerheads, uh, threshers, makers, all of these sharks that, you know, we may think of as being frightening and dangerous. But what you mentioned in your question is really important. You, you look at the conditions, you assess everything that's going on at that moment in time. What's the visibility like? Where's the sun at? Are we at dusk or dawn where they're most likely to be active? What species of sharks are we working with? What's their body language like? How are they moving in the water? Have they got an angular movement about them? Are they bumping off each other and showing signs of threat towards other sharks? You assess all those things, and if you get it right, it can be done with more safety than diving with seals or dolphins. But you always have to know that a bite from even a small shark can be really dangerous. So, you know, you, you have to make sure that you run through all of that checklist every single time. I can imagine. Now, as someone who is extremely well versed in climate and biodiversity science, um, I wanted to ask your view on the current state of play. Um, and can you explain why biodiversity loss is making headlines at global conferences such as COP15? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're at a critical time right now. Um, the, the big report, the State of the Planet report that was released by the WWF last year, um, it is kind of the seminal work on biodiversity loss. 
And funnily enough, it's been carried out during the, the course of my lifetime. So it follows us back to the early 1970s when I was born, when we had half the human population that we do now and when we had considerably more wildlife. So their report says that we may have lost 69% of wildlife on average across the world. When you start to break it down, it's even more frightening than that because you know, in Europe, our biodiversity loss as a whole is, is not dramatic. But if you look at Latin America and the Caribbean, it's over 90% of wildlife that's been lost in that time. Wow. So locally, those you know, catastrophic declines in biodiversity are followed with extinctions of specific species. They're, they're followed with you know, dramatic habitat loss and all of the repercussions that come with that. And those, those are vast. You know, for me, as someone who loves wildlife, probably the, the number one thing is just the, the fear of losing snow leopards and tigers and, and you know how our planet would be poorer without them but there are far far bigger repercussions for us than that you start to lose whole environments and you lose all the things those do for our for our, for our planet for, our, for for the various biospheres that they are a, a critical part of and then that has massive implications for for food security and for human security and for, for our climate. So biodiversity is, is a really important puzzle piece in this jigsaw that at present we are shaking up and, you know, just creating all sorts of massive problems. Nobody knows what the, you know, what's, what's actually going to happen when, when those things disappear and disappear for good. So at the beginning of March, the um, Historic Oceans Treaty was signed and it feels like a landmark achievement, having taken a decade of negotiations to reach that point. So the treaty will place 30% of the seas in two protected areas by 2030, uh, with the aim of safeguarding and helping to recuperate marine life. Um, as a keen supporter of many conservation charities, What's your response to the treaty? Do you think it will help? It's the biggest single step for preserving our oceans that has ever happened, certainly in my lifetime. Um, I am a massive believer in we can't protect everything. We've, we've, got, to, we've got to be rational and pragmatic about how we do conservation. Um, but we need to protect some places and those, how we choose them is critical. They need to be strategic, they need to be uh, important and they need to have a role in, in fueling and improving all of the other environments that surround them. So on land, I work with protecting, uh, buying and preserving tropical rainforest, massive tracts of it. Um, because you can't protect it all, but if you can protect the best bits and do it properly, then that can have a huge knock-on for biodiversity and it can have a huge knock-on for everything that surrounds that protected area. And the same is very much true of our marine environments. Protection of key environments is essential, but the, the, the critical bit, bit really is how you, um, how you legislate and how you police that protection. Because it, you know we have marine sanctuaries now that are marine sanctuaries in name only, and there's no effective policing of it, which means that actually they just become the, the most targeted places by fisheries because you know that that's the place where you're likely to find the most fish. 
if they can be policed properly, then real no-take zones, real ocean marine uh, parks work. They really work. You can see how marine life can bounce back in a comparatively short period of time. Sometimes in as little as three or four years, wow. you can see a really massive uh, effect on fish stocks, particularly things that, that reproduce quickly. So this, this huge goal, which is something that most people in conservation thought was too big and that we wouldn't be able to get across the line, is enormous. And everyone was cheering, but in the back of our minds, also knowing that without the correct policing, it's nothing more than, you know, just letters on a map that will be ignored. So I think I kind of have an, uh, an idea of what you're going to say, but how important are initiatives such as the Historic Oceans Treaty and the 30 by 30 initiative for protecting biodiversity? If, if, it, if it can be policed, um, it, it could be a huge part of the solution. It's not the solution, you know, you're still going to need global fisheries management, we're still going to need uh, a, a radical improvement of how we deal with bycatch of the kind of species we target, of aquaculture, all of these things, we still need to make massive improvements in, in all of those things. But if we could really genuinely protect 30% of our seas, and it was the right 30%, it would it would be the single biggest step towards you know the recovery of of our marine ecosystems so you may be aware that Guernsey launched the world's first natural capital fund last September and the regime is aimed at helping to funnel capital into nature positive projects. What would you say is needed to preserve wildlife for future generations? Is it up to governments to join forces and address the issue or do you think that private finance can play a role? All of the above. Um, so I, I, I'm not an expert in finance. Um, I've made that very clear <laughs> on coming here that this, this is not my realm. But what I do know is that everything in, in conservation costs money and it costs a lot of money. And that it, a small amount of money in the right place can change worlds, save species, make a vast difference. And a huge amount of money that goes in the wrong place will just vanish. It'll just disappear and head into the wrong pockets and, and do nothing. So the critical thing, I'm saying critical an awful lot. <laughs> but it is so critical. The really important thing, it really is critical. The, the really important thing is, is finding the right partners, finding the right partners on the ground to make sure that that money's going in the right place. That's something that we, we've really learned with the World Land Trust is that we, we focus on buying these big areas of tropical forests. Um, and we very rarely just parachute in and say, right, this is us, the World Land Trust. Here's all this money. We're buying this land. Because what happens in 10 years' lifetime, 20 years, 30 years, 100 years, you need to make sure that there is the correct stewardship with the people that you're working with are, are going to have that integrity off into the future for you know, local people's grandkids and great-grandkids. Um, so it's finding those partners, which is critical. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, you're also a keen explorer, uh, and you've probably been to some of the world's most remote and nature-rich parts of the globe uh, as part of your explorations. Can you describe what it's like seeing it all firsthand and how it's helped you understand the scale of decline in species and habitats that have occurred since you started to make programs um, and the need to address the climate crisis uh, and biodiversity crisis? Um, it's some of which, uh, the stuff that I'm about to talk about today, actually. 
So I I just had a significant birthday. I was I was 50 just a couple of weeks ago. Happy birthday Thank for a couple of weeks much. ago. And, and that forms quite a neat metric for for looking at change. You know, one not entire human lifetime. I don't think of myself as being particularly old, but I was born in the early 70s and we had fewer than half the people on the planet back then and way more than half the wildlife. We've seen a whole range of, of different species go extinct. There are many more that are right on the brink. Um, and I'm, I'm old enough to have memories of a childhood where driving down country lanes in the summer, our windscreen would be plastered with moth snow and the bugs that were the thundering you know, into our windscreen. It doesn't happen anymore. We've eradicated those to such a degree that, that you know, moth snow is a thing of the past, certainly here in the UK. I can remember going on holidays to the Mediterranean as a, as a young child and the waters being full of fish. And now ecologists are talking about the Mediterranean as, as being, you know, pretty much fished out. Um, so there are changes that I have seen in my lifetime and to particular places. For example, Borneo, that I did my first expeditions to in the early 1990s, and I've been back to every five or six years since. And I've seen the towns go from places where there, you know, wasn't even motorbikes, where people getting around on, on bicycles, to towering skyscrapers and, and multi-lane highways. And I've seen the forests go from endless, infinite swathes of green to palm oil plantations. So most of the changes that I've seen have been have been negative, but there have been many that are really, really positive. And it's particularly where you see protection, what we were talking about with um, marine reserves, how quickly nature can bounce back. I've been to places that have been deforested and then left and have recovered within, within three or four years to, to dense secondary forest. It's not as biodiverse as it was before, but it's still packed with life. So I have a tremendous amount of hope, but I, I know the amount of will it's going to take now to, to set the balance straight. It's really good to hear that you still feel optimistic despite all of that. So um, venturing into some of the most remote and inaccessible places on the planet must require you to be at peak mental and physical condition. You would. <laughs> Tell me about your training process. And actually, we saw you on Facebook the other day bench pressing your own children, which is probably part of yes. it. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, so what I've always done is, um, because I, I do expeditions in an array of different formats. So uh, at the moment, I'm doing quite a lot of free diving. So I've got a, a few big expeditions which are mostly based around free diving. So most of what I'm doing is working on my breath hold training um, and a lot of yoga and things like that. But then I might be going off and doing a kayaking expedition for which I'm going to need, you know, very, very specific paddling skills to be in, you know, in, in real sharp focus. Uh, and then I might be mountaineering, I could be rock climbing, I could be, you know, jungle hiking. So the important thing is that I keep a really strong base level of fitness. 
uh, that I keep myself as injury free as possible um, and that I keep myself with this this kind of base which means that I can then um, specify over the course of yeah, I rarely get more than a couple of months before an expedition to, to really hone my skills in one particular direction so I've got to keep a really strong base level keep my hand in technically with you know most of the different things that I do keep my qualifications high as well because that's really important um, and then and then adapt at pace as soon as I know that I've got something specific coming up wow what's it like living in the wild you know away from everything for weeks months uh, it was it was an awful lot easier before I had kids and I, I'm sure anyone who's who's listening to this and has children themselves will will be able to to understand uh, what I'm saying because uh, you know my twins now are three my oldest is four and you can go away for a long weekend and come back and they feel like different people mm -hmm. you go away for six weeks in the jungle when you've got little or no communication with the outside world and it, it you come back and they're they're just unrecognizable and it it's heart-wrenching um, and you know a lot of the travel that I do I may be staying in places where I, I can I can FaceTime home but there's a lot that, that I don't um, and I find that I find that really tough the flip side of it is the same benefits that I've always found which have been opening your tent door in the morning looking out at mountains one of which you may or may not climb having no real idea what the day ahead is going to hold but knowing it's going to be something spectacular um, you know taking light into cave systems that have never been illuminated before wow. and just not knowing what's going to be around the next corner holding animal species in your hand and knowing that nobody has ever seen that before that you are the first and that you are going to get a chance to give it a name um, that those are things that I find I, I just can't quantify the positivity. I mean, that's pretty special. Yeah. What's been your most memorable expedition, and for what reason? Oh, that's really tricky. Um, I think you know there was there were quite a few just after we had our first child, um, which were all world world firsts and heading into places that no one had been into before. Um, I remember we, we climbed one particular mountain in Greenland, uh, which had no name, was you know definitely unclimbed, and after we summited, it was a really frightening and dangerous summit. Um, I spoke to the um, the local elders in the nearest village, which was still like 150 miles away. I mean, they had no idea that the place existed, but I asked their permission if we could name the mountain Firstborn Son, and they said yes, and and. So I got to name it in their local language, which I'm, I'm not going to try and pronounce. <laughs> so I'm not going to ask you to. <laughs> and, you know, things like that, just being able to say to my little boy now, there's a mountain in Greenland that's named after you. And one day you might come with daddy and go and climb it. It, those have been, you know, some of the highlights of my career. Thinking that I might take the family back to some of these places one day to, to see them and experience them, that, that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I reckon. So you received your Master's um, by research in bioscience back yeah. in 2020. Um, now, I understand your research centred on examining poisonous newts 
uh, and salamanders and looking at potential venoms for use uh, in areas such as pesticides and fertilizers. Some of your early TV work involved searching for and finding new species in remote regions. Is that an area that you're still interested in and what more do you think we can learn from the natural world? So venoms, poisons, natural toxins are, are something that I will always be fascinated by and there, there are a, an increasing amount of drugs on the market that have come from natural toxins and there will be more as well because these chemicals have evolved over millions of years to specifically target elements in a prey animal's body in ways that are extraordinarily effective, whether that's to create pain or to take away pain. There's, there are you know, venoms that are now being used to, to combat pain that are thousands of times more effective than, than morphine. And of course they are, because they've evolved over millennia to do that job. Um, there, are, there are plenty of venoms which can destroy cancer cells. Um, the unfortunate thing is that they destroy everything else as well. But there is every possible. I mean, the, the, the venom that I discovered and described, which was the first um, venom from any newt or salamander, is effective against cancer cells. It's just not effective enough. So it, uh, there is every possibility that you know the cure for a disease like cancer could absolutely come from venoms and poisons. Um, and there's there are billions of pounds worth of research around the world going in, going into exactly that. Um, so yeah, we have so much to learn in that realm. Um, in terms of exploration and, and going looking for new species, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but that that side of things is actually kind of easy. If you were to go to a tropical rainforest country, let's say uh, let's say Gabon in uh, West Central Africa, if you were to go there and take any one huge rainforest tree and smoke it out, that is pour, uh, you know, nasty pesticides up into the canopy and kill all the bugs and then sort through them, you probably find that 10% of them are new to science. Um, there are millions of species of particularly invertebrates out there left to be described and discovered. Um, what it takes is concentration and focus and work. And at the moment, that's not where my efforts lie. But I'm certainly not ruling it out because you know some of the best things I, I've I've done have been on expeditions going looking for new stuff. So obviously you've done a lot of work there. Um, you work with many conservation charities, and you're also a very keen supporter of young people, and specifically, as you mentioned earlier, helping them to understand and learn more about the natural world. What's your hope for future generations, given the current challenges faced? So I, I am very, very lucky, and I do get to do an awful lot of work with young activists. And yeah, there's a lot of trash talk about, about young people in activism. Um, and I get to see the very best of them. And you know, Greta gets all of the all of the kind of the fame and the column inches. But we have we have a thousand Gretas here in this country, every one of which has more enthusiasm and uh, ambition, lucidity than an eloquence than I will ever have. And it, it is frankly intimidating to be around them. They believe they can change the world and they are proving themselves right over and over again. Um, 
you know, there is, of course, there's a part of me that thinks that in certain areas we've we've gone too far, and it's going to be really, really hard for anyone to turn turn the tide. But then things like you know, thirty thirty per thirty comes along, and you think, well, yeah, no, there, there is there is still will. I was at COP26 as well, where you know there was a lot of a lot of negativity in the media, but actually being there, it felt like somewhere where deals were being done, where hands were being shaken by you know movers and shakers from around the world who were all huddled up in little corners, sat around tables, making deals, negotiating, doing all they could to ensure that our planet has a better future. And I found it utterly energizing and inspiring to be around. Yeah, of course, some of the, 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 the big headline treaties didn't get signed in the way we wanted them to, but there were thousands of smaller deals that were done that were hugely positive and we just didn't hear about them. Well, that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid. I could go on talking to you for hours, Steve, but it's <laughs> been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. And I'd like to thank you for listening. We have quite a back catalogue of interviews and panel discussions on the Sustainable Finance Guernsey podcast channel. You can check those out by searching for Sustainable Finance Guernsey wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review or a comment. We love to receive your feedback. You can also find us at sustainablefinanceguernsey.com and weareguernsey.com. You can interact with us on Twitter at sfguernsey and at weareguernsey. To hear more relating to news and developments coming out of Guernsey's finance industry, check out the We Are Guernsey podcast on your preferred platform. And we'll also have links to Steve's social media in the show notes as well. And we'll be back soon with another edition of the Sustainable Finance Guernsey podcast.